Well, good morning, everyone. First thing I'll do is say children are dismissed. You can go with the teachers back to your spot. Great. Good morning. I'm Thomas, and I'm one of your pastors here at Parkview. It's my pleasure today to proclaim the truths of the Bible to the questions that we have about life. Uh, today we're continuing our series on the resurrection. Uh, we've been working uh, since Easter and celebrating the resurrection of Christ. We have been uh, just sort of taking our time, working our way through uh, several kind of so what topics. Jesus has been raised from the dead. What does that mean? Why does it matter for us today? Uh, he, was he just raised and now he's off in the heavens? I don't doing playing golf? No. Uh, what's going on? And why does it matter? Uh, and today we're continuing our series considering, and maybe you could already discern it from the, the kinds of songs that we're singing, um, thinking about the resurrection and suffering. The resurrection and suffering. So I'll begin this way. Certain moments in life have the power to shift our core sense of being. And the pandemic and all that it is wrought is such a moment. Everyone seems to have a personal before and after. People have found themselves close to life's deepest questions, those that are forced by an apocalypse. Questions about how we live, how we suffer, how we make meaning of our short time here on earth. Who am I? Who are we? Who are we becoming? How have we been transformed? See, transformation has been forced on some, and for others it was chosen. And the process of reflection is just beginning. Where it takes us remains to be seen. But the clarity that comes with intense suffering often clouds as time moves on. And we have a window now to look at our lives anew. Compelling prose. I didn't write it. Uh, that was a special section in the New York Times last week um, entitled, How the Pandemic Birthed an Awakening for Many Americans. And you might say, well, I don't, that doesn't express my views. I don't like that. Uh, but it does your neighbors and your friends and your, your family, maybe many of your family members and people in Iowa City. And so today, I mean, listen to those questions. Who am I? Who are we? How have we been transformed? What do we do? What is suffering? Why do we suffer? Why are we so hurt by it? I want to do two things today. First, I want everyone here, well, we'll do what we do every week. I want everyone here to listen to a Christian account of reality, of suffering in particular, in light of the resurrection of Jesus. And second, uh, especially for those here who you already have your hope in Jesus, I want to equip you to have some simple ideas for how you might begin to have a conversation with your friend, your neighbor, your roommate, your whoever it might be, brother or sister, I don't know about this topic with an opportunity to share the hope that you have because of Jesus. People are asking these questions. People are open to them in a way that maybe they weren't before. Maybe you're here and you're right in that bucket with them. Uh, you're wondering, who am I? Who are we? What is, what is going on? We have answers. So today, we're going to ask and answer two questions about suffering from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 15 uh, that Matthew just read for us so, so wonderfully. Those two questions are, what is suffering, and how do we endure suffering? If you like to write things down, this is your moment to shine. What is suffering, and how do we endure suffering? First, if you're willing, pray with me. We need the Lord's help to learn these things. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for your living word, Christ. I pray that Christ would be our teacher today. You would somehow use my, my words, my human words, to speak divine truths to your people. We know you are here among us. You have heard us worshiping you. You have received our worship. And now we ask you to teach us. Teach us about suffering. You are the Lord of suffering. The Lord who suffers. The King who is conquered, so to speak, and yet lives. Teach us. You know more about suffering than we will ever know. Teach us what it means to suffer and why we can have hope. Compel us to love. Compel us to obey. Compel us with Christ, we pray. Amen. So two questions. First of all, what is suffering? 2 Corinthians 4. What is suffering? Well, if someone were to ask you, if, if for instance, when we go, you go back to your house today, and let's say you've got to mow your lawn. I don't know about you. I'm kind of I'm right about there. It's a beautiful day, and, and your neighbor is across the yard, the lawn, the street, whatever it might be, whatever, or across the hall, who knows? And they ask you, hey, what's suffering? What is, what do you, what's your take? What's the Christian take on suffering? Uh, what would you say? Or maybe you're, you're here and you don't believe and you feel like, you know, how would you answer that? The same question. What is suffering? What's your account of suffering? Why is it that we suffer? Why do we suffer internally? Why is that? Um, or maybe you might ask your neighbor as a way to open up a conversation, how have you gotten through this year? What's done it for you? What's gotten you through? What, what are the resources that have sort of helped you spiritually, psychologically, whatever, however you take account of that? How have you managed it? As the article stated, this moment has caused us and our neighbors to ask those big questions. Is there meaning to suffering? How do we endure suffering? And it's significant because that not only that we have answers, but that everyone has answers to those questions. Um, you have them. You're walking around with them. You have, functionally, you have answers to those questions. The only question is whether they're good answers. <laughs> um, it's sort of like a diet. You know, um, you might ask me, Thomas, what's your diet? And I might, you know, I could say, well, I'm on the seafood diet. You know, I see food and I eat it. You know, that is a diet. That is a diet, not a good one. You know, you might ask me, uh, it's not a good one, but everyone has one, even if the, the answer is, you know, not a very healthy one. Um, the, the, the answers to these foundational questions will determine whether you will be able to endure suffering. Uh, just this last week, our neighbors, next door neighbors, were building a retaining wall in their backyard. And uh, I was sort of peeking over there, and I noticed, you know, the first step, they took all the old stuff down and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the first thing they did was they got it incredibly level, you know. They got their, their sort of their surveying equipment and their big, you know, eight-foot-long level, and they, they worked super hard um, to get everything plumb, true, level, straight, all that stuff. Uh, for a long time, they were working on that um, because the bottom row needed to pre be perfectly straight. Now, as they moved up, you know, each, each, each uh, course of, of brick, they went a little bit faster. They didn't measure quite as much. They sort of, they would make sure, tap, 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 okay, keep going, keep going. They'd move a lot faster. Uh, that, because that first row would determine, you know, whether the rest of it would stand. And when the storm comes, is it going to collapse into their yard and cause a catastrophe? Or is it going to stand up? Is it going to stand on that foundational uh, first row? All of us have answers to our our the big questions about suffering and life. Yours might not be tested right now. You might not have the storm pushing them and seeing whether that first course is really as straight and level and true and, and trustworthy as it ought to be. 
But will your answers keep you upright in the storm? That's the question. The Bible's answers to these questions have weathered thousands of years. Thousands. Thousands of years. Not, I want to say, because they give us every answer to every question that we might have, especially about our particular suffering, but because the answers that they give have proven over time, over generations, over millennia, to align with reality and people's lived experience of suffering. They're trustworthy. So let's jump in. What is suffering? I want to point uh, specifically to verses 8 and 9. We're going to spend a lot of time there. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are afflicted. We are afflicted. The Bible first affirms that suffering is real. It's real. The Bible calls it affliction. Affliction. Sounds dramatic. If you talk to a friend and they say, how are you doing? I'm afflicted. <laughs> say, okay, what, what's going on? No, we are afflicted. And not just pandemics and wars and systemic oppression and everything else under, no. God sees every paper cut, every harsh word that was received by you this week, every stolen toy in your, every shady business deal that left you on the wrong end of things, every estranged relationship that you have to revisit in your mind or in person around the holidays, all of those things, God labels affliction. We are afflicted in suffering. God is not in the heavens looking down at us and sort of shaking his head at our little bumps and bruises and saying, don't you know what's going on in India? Buck up. Come on. No. In fact, that's, isn't that one of the primary ways that we sort of try to manage and handle our suffering uh, by sort of downplaying it and sort of trying to keep it under a certain level so that it doesn't actually overwhelm us? We sort of, we do that in a number of ways, right? We sort of, it's almost like managing your cholesterol, you know, keep it at the lowest level, do, do a few interventions every once in a while, take a pill, do whatever, you know, don't eat that corn dog and so forth, back to diet, yeah. Uh, but we do that, we sort of manage it in different ways. We, we tell ourselves sometimes, we say, ah, oh, I've lost that thing. I've lost that relationship or I lost that opportunity, but it doesn't really matter to me. I didn't care about it. Shield ourselves from the hurt. Uh, we say, it's my fault. I should have lowered my expectations. I shouldn't have really wanted that thing in the first place, so whatever. I'm not, it's fine. It's fine. Or maybe we are, we are hurt. You have been hurt so badly that you've decided I'll never be hurt again. And you build a concrete nuclear uh, level of concrete around your heart, armor, to make sure that nothing will ever hurt you again, or touch you, or anything. But that's not how God wants us to live, and that's not how God sees us in our, in our suffering. There is a number in the mind of God today, as we sit here, Parkview Church, East Campus, Cross Park Road, whatever it is, there's a number in the mind of God. It is the number of tears that you have cried. He knows it. He watched each one. And he has kept count, the Bible tells us. There's a number for you. He does not get flippant with your suffering, acting like, come on. He is not scoffing at your suffering. In fact, he has joined you in your suffering. More on that in a moment. So the first thing we learn is that suffering is real. We're afflicted, it says, in suffering. 
Secondly, um, this passage says that suffering is confusing. Or to use Paul's word there in verse 8, um, he says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, perplexed. Or confused, as I sort of give a little translation there. You know, sometimes we suffer, and it's pretty clear that we're suffering because we've made some kind of boneheaded decision. Uh, we've, done, we've, we've hurt a friend. We, we said a harsh word to a friend. We were impatient with our spouse. Uh, we made a really poor money decision. Uh, we, we've sinned, you know, is what the Bible often would say. It. And now, you know, we're suffering from that. We, our friend is giving us the cold shoulder. Uh, we, are, we have financial difficulties, or we have whatever it might be. Uh, in, in some cases, it's not hard to draw a straight line between the silly thing that I did and the pain that I'm feeling today. But haven't you found that often it's not that way? I remember um, in, in middle school, I was in shop class over at Northwest Junior High. And I don't know if you can just tell looking at me and sort of the energy I've got, but I was a little bit impulsive when I was a young man. And um, I remember, I don't remember what we were making, but I was in the little wood area and they had this drum sander, you know, it was a little, I don't even know how to describe it. You would know how to describe it, Mike. But, um, uh, I remember I needed to take the, the little drum off and put a new one on, which I don't think I was allowed to do, even in the first place. But uh, I was trying to get it off with this wrench. It wasn't working. And I just got so frustrated. Uh, and so I decided, the, it was a vice grip, and it was still on the machine. I decided, I'll just hold on to it and turn the machine on. <laughs> yeah, that's how it went. <laughs> um, it spun off. Luckily, it didn't hit me in the face. Uh, it just socked me right in the stomach. I was out of breath. It hit a window or something. My shop teacher ran and, what'd you do? What happened? What happened? Are you okay? And I think I lied to him. I told him something. I made up some story. It was not hard in that case to figure out why I was suffering. <laughs> it was my fault. I, I did something wrong. I, I lied. I, did, I broke the rules, and I was suffering for it. But other times, we suffer seemingly, seemingly, for no reason at all. And there is no straight line that we can draw between our bad decision and our pain. And so we are, as the Apostle Paul says, perplexed, bewildered, we might say. We're confused, puzzled. Why did this happen? Where is this coming from? I was minding my own business. There are times when we encounter suffering that seems to be, that feels totally pointless. God, in 1 Corinthians 8, 4.8 has anticipated our frustration. Suffering is perplexing, often perplexing. You can say to your unbelieving neighbor this week, your unbelieving friend, your unbelieving roommate, this just isn't the way things ought to be, is it? I, I don't know why this happened. I'm not sure. What do you think? What is this? Here, this is one of those things that's I think if it weren't in the Bible, I would say, is that really true? There it is. And it, I have to be honest, this has been a great comfort to me just in the past week as I've prepared for this, this sermon. You have permission to be perplexed, but not driven to despair. And I hope that Parkview Church here at East Campus, that we would be a place that in our, the culture of our church life reveals this truth. That when people who are suffering come here, they don't feel worried that the first thing that they do when they talk to one of us is give an account for our suffering. 
that I can come here and it will be safe to say I'm perplexed. That I won't have to give an account for my sadness or find a bright lining on every single cloud in my life or figure out exactly what God's trying to teach me. Suffering is often perplexing. So suffering is real. Suffering is often perplexing. And third, the Bible says that persecution and suffering are often linked. Uh, it says there again in verse 8, or sorry, now in verse 9, persecuted, but not forsaken, persecuted. That is to say, what is a persecutor? A persecutor, simply put, is an enemy. It's an oppressor. It's, it's uh, suffering, that is to say, is an enemy. It's a, it doesn't belong, and it has come in from outside of us, in a certain sense, and it is oppressing us. The, Later, Paul is actually going to go on to categorize all suffering under the heading of death. Death, after all, isn't, isn't, if suffering, according to one account of things, suffering is the loss of meaning and purpose in life, and if that's the case, then, I mean, what is death but the ultimate loss of meaning and purpose and relationship? And so suffering is, in so many ways, it's the shadow of death. It's the... It's the uh, uh, it's, it's warning us. It, it's, it feels like death chasing us down, stealing things that we love as we go, only to, in the end, steal everything. But death is not a natural inhabitant of God's good world. Death is an intruder, and one day God will throw him out. And yet death is also at work in us. Suffering um, is a part of the story. Now, I have to pause and just say, hey, if you're here or if you're, you have neighbors and friends, this is a, if you have a thoroughgoing secular view of the world um, that sort of nothing really happens outside of what can be explained by logic in my brain and all that kind of thing, this is something that you can't really affirm, that suffering is not normal or that we shouldn't expect it or anything like that. Remember Tennyson, in his, one of his great poems, said that nature is red in tooth and claw. How did we get here on that account? by violence, by our ancestors being violent to other people and winning. And so suffering in that account is fine. It's actually how the world progresses in the Bible's account of things. God created a good world where suffering did not exist. And isn't that as you, doesn't your heart resonate with that account of things? We're not supposed to suffer. We're not meant to suffer. That's not just wishful thinking. It's true. Our first parents disobeyed God and brought suffering into our world, even into our own hearts, so that we're complicit in suffering. And they've transmitted this to us, this, this tendency in our hearts and our minds and with our hands to distrust and disobey God and even to perpetuate the very suffering that we're suffering from. And in fact, this is the biggest problem of all in all of world history. How, how can God end evil? How can God end death without ending us? God has made a way. More on that in a minute. So suffering is real. Suffering is often perplexing. And there's a relationship between persecution and suffering. Fourth, and this is our last answer to this first question, the Bible says that suffering is an opportunity. Suffering is an opportunity. As that, as that article reminded us, it said, for some, facing trauma feels just too hard. It's just too difficult to deal with. Some have found unexpected resilience. But transformation was forced on some, and for others, it was chosen. Paul affirms that idea. Paul says they've hit on something true there. 
Suffering is a fork in the road. Suffering will make us choose a way. It will harden us and make us angry and bitter over time, or it will soften us. It will make us resilient. It will make us courageous. It will look again at these, these pairs of words. I've sort of skipped over the second in each pair, didn't I? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Dis- persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. How can you, if, if, that is su- if suffering is affliction, how can you let it afflict you without becoming crushed? Don't you know someone who has been afflicted by suffering, but not crushed? Who has followed this pattern of suffering in life? For whom suffering somehow didn't crush them, but strengthened them? And on the other hand, don't you know someone who, who was afflicted, maybe similarly afflicted, but was completely crushed? Who, who maybe built the armor around their hearts so thick that they could never be touched again, and, and no one could ever hurt them again. Nothing ever, ever bad could happen because they sort of gave up on ever having happiness on, on, on everything again. They were afflicted and crushed. How can you be perplexed but not driven to despair? Don't you know similarly someone who has suffered and been so vexed by it, so confused by it, so lost and so thrown for a loop that they lose all meaning and purpose in their existence and they turn into just kind of a shell of themselves. No confidence in the world, not just for a little bit, but permanently, it seems. On the other hand, you know someone who has gone through maybe even more vexing circumstances, more confusing, more perplexing, and yet they have come through the other side of that mysterious path of suffering They've been perplexed, and they came out with a new sense of confidence, resilience, and, and they seem more in touch with and more aware of who they are in the universe and what they are meant to do. They're even able to help others. How do we do that? Suffering is a fork in the road. It will make us go somewhere. It will turn us into something. It will always be. That's what the article said. It will transform us, some by force, Uh, some by choice. So how can we do that? How can we become radiant rather than being crushed? That is, how can we be afflicted without being crushed? How can you be perplexed but not driven to despair? How can you be persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed? That is to say, if your friend or neighbor were, were to come back to you and say, hey, how do you deal with suffering? You're asking me all these questions. How would, how would you answer that? What would you say? What would you say? How have you dealt with this here? How does a Christian deal with this here? That's our second question. How do we endure suffering? Well, Paul summarizes the Christian way in verse 10. He says, We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What does it mean to carry in the body the death of Jesus? That is quite a line. Carry, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. It means a lot. And that's a phrase you should stick in your back pocket or write down on a piece of paper and just revisit a few times this week because it's worth meditating on and thinking about because there, it's, it's got to be one of the more revolutionary things that anyone's ever written. That the way to endure suffering is by carrying in the body death. The way to avoid death is death. The way to avoid suffering is to... What does it mean? Well, at the highest level, it means this. Let suffering work on you. 
Let it work in you. Let it touch you. Let it hurt you. Let death afflict you. Let suffering perplex you. Let it strike you down, so to speak. What does that mean? Well, when your brother or sister or spouse or neighbor or coworker says a harsh word to you, let it hurt you. Don't, don't excuse it away and say, I didn't care about them anyway. That, what do they know? Whatever. Don't, 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 don't protect yourself and protect your heart by just reflecting the anger right back at them. Doesn't that feel easier? Don't. And, and then do the even braver thing and go to them and say, you know what you said? It, it hurt me. That hurt me. And then have the power to forgive them. If, if, you have ever, if you have ever really forgiven someone for a real hurt, you know it feels like death. Not, I, I think each of these actions, done properly, done with real intention, they feel like death, don't they? To let someone really hurt you, to let someone really sting you, to go to someone. Did you know it takes a lot of spiritual power and energy and everything to, to go to someone and say, you hurt me. Because it gives them power, doesn't it? it, it because you're telling them, you, you can hurt me. And you, you did, you hurt me. To come with humility like that, not, not saying, you hurt me and you better apologize, but to say, you've, you've hurt me. And to forgive, to really forego punishment, to really not give them the cold shoulder, to really not silently in your mind or in your heart remember that wrong, and when you feel hurt, to return to it again and again and again. Each of those things, done properly, don't they feel like dying? They feel like I'm losing. They feel like I'm... I'm it feels like the shadow of death. I know that might sound dramatic, but it's not. It's affliction. It's real. Don't resist it. Let it work in you. Let it work on you. Carry it in you. If you do so, this, this passage, here's one of the greatest promises that I've read this week. If you do that, the actual life of the Son of God will course through you and be manifest in you. What? <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. How can, now, I've given it away, but how can you actually do that? I haven't actually given you any resources to this point. I hope you've noticed. I've just told you what to do. How can you actually do that? How can you become a person who does that? What kind of, how do you build that kind of character into yourself? How do you actually, I mean, you know people who can do it. How did they do it? If suffering really is the shadow of death, how can we move toward death? Is there anything less natural in the world? Is there anything less normal than for, for me to stand up here? Just go toward death. Go. Do it. If you ever need assurance that God will not forget you, if you today, and you must, you should, if you today push all of your chips in on dying and rising with Christ, how can you be confident that he will not abandon you, will not forget you, will not leave you in your little death, mini-death, will not forget you, will not forsake you? How can you know? Look at the cross. Look back at those four descriptions of, of suffering again, that we're afflicted but not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. In the life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he encountered plenty of just the normal workaday human suffering. 
he, his hands got cut up, he bled, he, he had people snub him, he had to forgive, he had to uh, do things that he didn't feel like doing that day, I don't know, the, all kinds of normal human experience he endured. But then on the cross, it wasn't just normal human suffering. It wasn't just ouchy nails, bummer. It wasn't just, ah, this hurts really bad. On the cross, Jesus experienced every ounce of human agony possible. Not just to heal our suffering, but to pay for our sin. To forgive us. The part that we play, the ways that we are complicit in the suffering that we experience and even we, we propagate in this world. Why did he do that? Why did he have to do that? So that you can embrace affliction, be afflicted without being crushed. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus was not just afflicted. He was crushed for you. You can embrace perplexment without despair, without giving up hope, without saying, oh, because Jesus on the cross was not just perplexed. Do you remember what he said on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He despaired of life itself so that you, when you choose suffering, when you choose to move toward it, to let it really touch you, you will never have to say that. You, you can never say, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. No. Jesus on the cross said, I am forsaken, so that you, in the midst of your suffering, will never have to. You can embrace persecution without feeling abandoned, without feeling like God no longer has my back, because on the cross, Jesus was abandoned. He was abandoned by his Father for you. You, in fact, you can embrace every blow, every pain, every mini miniature-scale death that's real, that the world sends your way, because you know it can never really touch you. It can't. It can never really destroy you because on the cross, Jesus' body was destroyed. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up again for you. And we know because of the pattern of Jesus, God will not abandon us to death. All the more, it gets better because Jesus did not stay in his grave having suffered what we might suffer and what our souls are heading toward in suffering if we don't intervene. God did not leave him in the grave. God raised him up again. God raised him up to new life, the ultimate promise that suffering does not have the final word over us. That if we follow Jesus into death, look at verse 14, if we follow him into death, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That if you, if you today mount up courage Stir up your heart with this kind of love, with this kind of compassion, with this kind of life towards suffering and follow him into death, into what is real, the shadow of real death. Not, we're not joking around, really, it's affliction, it's real. How can you be assured that if you follow him into death, he will be followed into life? Because God didn't leave him in the grave. And he won't leave you there either. Not once and for all, and not today and tomorrow, and the next day, when you follow him into the next little valley, into the next little darkness, into the next little death that he is calling you toward, whether today that means coming to Jesus for the first time and saying, I'm willing to die to my agenda, I'm willing to die 
to the hopes that I have for my life in this world. I see that my agenda was wrong. I see that the ways that I, I have internalized suffering, I have made it, I've, I've per- persecuted suffering, or I've perpetrated suffering. I am part of the problem. How can you fix it without getting rid of me? Come to him. Come to this. Have you ever heard of this kind of Lord? This kind of king who dies for his subjects? Have you ever heard of this kind of king who rules from the grave and rises again? Have you ever heard of this kind of healer who lets himself be killed so that he might heal? Come to him. Have you ever heard of anyone more trustworthy to to lay the whole weight of your life and all the expectations that you have and all the sufferings you've gone through and all the things you've done wrong who will not receive you with blows and anger and frustration and resentment but who will receive you with kindness and newness of life? This This is what you need. If you will become the kind of person that we all know that this world desperately needs, a person who will actually move towards suffering for others, that's what you must do. We must come to Jesus, and we must let him lead us into the next death. Do you see that? There's something really interesting in verses uh, 10 and 11. It says, always carrying, that's a passive word, or sorry, that's an active word. Paul says, I am carrying. You know what carrying is like. You choose to do it. <laughs> I am carrying. I'm carrying this. I'm carrying it. I chose it. It was volitional. I, I choose death. And then look at the next verse. Always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And the next verse says almost the same thing, almost the exact same thing, but with one difference. Do you notice it? Verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Almost the same thing, but the difference is, here's what that's communicating to us. If we will give ourselves over to death, if you, in going to your neighbor and sparking up a silly conversation using one of these little questions that I threw your way today, if you will take just one tiny step, if you will die a little bit to maybe you're wondering to their opinion of me or to just you know, the, the hour that it might take me to really engage or whatever it might be. If you will take that step of death, if you will volitionally, if you will move forward into death, he will make sure that he only gives you over into the death that will never actually kill you, that can never actually touch you. What death is Christ calling you to today? Is he calling you to die to comfort? Is there something in your life There are a thousand different ways that we sort of try to deal with suffering, a thousand different ways we try to sort of assuage our hearts and sort of numb ourselves or sort of endlessly stream videos or whatever it might be that we sort of keep to keep ourselves from suffering. What death is Christ calling you to today? And notice that principle, that death is at work in us. This, I mean, one of the most, this has been a verse that I've been cherishing for probably at at least the last six weeks. Doug Fur can attest to that. Death is at work in us, but life in you. If this church, if your family and friends, your household, your roommates, if your classmates, your roommates, if your neighborhood, if your workplace, if our city will be transformed for the cause of Christ, it is because we have taken seriously verse 12. Death at work in us, life in you. That is how the world moves forward, friends. Will we die with Christ? Will we follow our captain into the breach? 
He's not on the retreat, by the way. He's moving forward. Will we follow him? Will we follow him uh, toward death, knowing that he can never really touch us? Let's live courageously today. Death at work in us, life in our friends, life in our sons and daughters, life in our coworkers and neighbors, life. If we will die with him, he will raise us again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful to your word. You're faithful to your promise. You're faithful to your son, and you will be faithful to us. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus, to see that in his death and resurrection, he has given us the ultimate answer to suffering. That if we follow him into a death like his, that he will raise us up into a life like his. Not, not if we earn the kind of, by suffering, earn a life like his. No. If we will come to him and collapse into his arms, he will, he will greet us like an old friend and lead us into new life. Will we die with him today? Will we risk it? Lord, help us to know that if we push all our chips in on Christ and his cause today, we will never be disappointed and we will never lose. Fill us with courage. Fill us with confidence. Prepare us for this thing. And maybe you're here and uh, this is new for you. Let's, here's how you might pray if this is brand new for you. God, I want to see what it means that Christ has really died for me and I might have new life in him. Would you show that to me and show me how I might receive it? Make me soft to this. Help me to understand it and lead me to see who Jesus really is. Amen. And the church.